On this episode of Physically Spiritual, I explore the idea of embodiment and how we grow closer to God as embodied persons. Physically Spiritual is a podcast about my experience of growing physically healthier and how that changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Welcome to season four of Physically Spiritual, everyone. The long wait is over. Actually, hopefully not too long of a wait as I trickled out some interviews in between seasons. But just to take you back a little bit, if this is your first episode, in season one, I explored the Catholic worldview and salvation as a healing process. In season two, I looked at the three pillars of becoming like God, the sacraments, prayer, and asceticism. And in season three, I explored mental and emotional health as it relates to overcoming habitual sins and other struggles. So if you want to go back into the seasons and dig in, please do. Uh, I'll leave links in the show notes and you can find it in the podcast stream or on my website, becominggift.com. In this episode, the start up season four, I want to talk about the idea of embodiment because it really, I think it summarizes a lot of what I've already discussed, but also takes it to the next level. And it's going to lead into some of what we're going to be talking about here in season four. To start out, I want to share a quote from Dr. Uh, John Crosby in his book, The Personalism of John Paul II, which is a, a series of essays he wrote on John Paul II's uh, philosophy. He says in an essay on embodiment, he says, a notorious Catholic feminist was recently calling into question all of the moral teachings of the church in the area of sexuality. And she said, God does not care what we do with each other's bodies. He only cares whether we treat each other as persons. In other words, men and women could do anything they like with each other's bodies, short of using coercion, of course, as long as they show respect for the other as persons. This in turn implies that there are no definite bodily ways of showing respect or disrespect for persons. Showing respect to another is mainly an interior and disembodied act. Since any use of another's body can in principle express respect. By detaching personal respect from its bodily expression, this feminist fails to understand how we exist as embodied persons. She thus provides an example of what I call spiritualism. Since she lays great stress on showing respect to persons, her statement typifies spiritualistic personalism. All right, so what, what he's saying here is this quote um, expresses a view, a philosophical view of the human, per, human person that sees what I am is primarily my soul. So my soul is me as a person. And my body, in a sense, is not me as a person. It's something I, it's not something I am, it's something I have. It's something I use, it's not me. He says, now John Paul II's personalism is very different. He takes very seriously the embodiment of human persons. He thinks that God cares very much what we do with each other's bodies. His personalism is not spiritualistic, it's incarnational. Incarnational. And this term incarnational is important because on the one extreme, we have this kind of spiritualism that I am my soul and I'm my mind and I'm not my body. 
But we can take it to the opposite extreme and say, well, I'm my body. And I'm just the sum of the function of the physical part, right? My consciousness can be explained by my brain. Mind and brain are identical with one another. And I'm just my body. I'm not my soul. But this idea of incarnational personalism is that I'm an embodied spirit. I'm a body and soul composite that's a single person. And this concept of person uh, just notes that I'm the sum of everything that's me, body and soul. Later on in the essay, Dr. Crosby states this. He also speaks of a sacramental capacity of the human body, which is capable of visibly expressing the invisible person and of doing so in such a way as to invite persons to love each other. The point is that the Pope takes our embodiment as man and woman far more seriously than does the unisex position, which is tainted by spiritualist, spiritualistic personalism. A body endowed with a nuptial meaning and a sacramental power of rendering the invisible visible is something far more and far richer than a merely biological body. It is a body endowed with rich personalistic meaning a body that mysteriously embodies the person. So this unisex position that he's referring to is that, that if I'm just my soul and I'm not my body, then being male or female is purely an accidental physical characteristic, but it's not a spiritual characteristic. So, it, so this basic claim is that a human is a unisex soul and the body is just male or female. And so then we can imply all kinds of, of different consequences from this. But John Paul II is making a deeper claim that we as persons are, are, are nuptial, meaning that, that maleness and femaleness is a theological reality. It's a philosophical reality and it's a spiritual reality. So a, a male body is an embodiment of a masculine person. A female body is an embodiment of a feminine person. And we're made uh, to reciprocally love one another. This is this nuptial meaning of the body that he's talking about. And, and in this, the body is sacramental. A sacrament is a, it's a, a, a visible reality. There's a sign, there's a matter that expresses an invisible grace that we can't experience with our senses. So the body makes something visible, makes something sensible that wouldn't be otherwise. And ultimately, John Paul II, the height of this idea is that the body is meant to reveal the nature of God to the world or theology of the body. Theos, God, ology, study of the body. So our, our body expresses the nature of God to the world when we use it according to its design. So a lot of the philosophy that's underneath these misunderstandings of the relationship of body and soul and what that implies for our life come out of both modern philosophy and its precursor in some, um, some heresies in the church, which were misappropriations of ancient Greek philosophy into Catholic thought. So out of um, modern philosophy comes two uh, polar opposite views, 
this kind of over-spiritualism and this over-physicalism. Modern philosophy begins with Descartes' proposition, cogito ergo sum, or I think, therefore I am, identifying the human person as a mind or a consciousness that is me. The, the basic idea of this was that your, your body is something that your soul is in. He uses the image of a captain in a ship, that I am my soul and I'm the captain and my body is the ship. Or, or a more contemporary expression of this might be the idea of the ghost in the shell. It was a popular anime movie that became, um, became a live action movie in the United States. So I'm my soul, my body's just a shell, it's accidental. On the other hand, modern philosophy also leads to an opposite extreme. And this opposite extreme is that I am just a body. That spirit doesn't exist at all. The soul doesn't exist at all. It's just something we make up. It's, um, it's like a God of the gaps situation. Um, the God of the gaps fallacy is that there's some gap in our understanding of the natural world. So we plug God into the hole to explain the reason why. Oh, I don't understand the solar eclipse. Well, it's because God makes it happen. At base, it's a misunderstanding of causality. God doesn't compete with natural causes to make things happen. So something can both simultaneously have a natural explanation and have a supernatural explanation. God's providence doesn't compete with his creation um, in causing things to happen. So in a similar way, we have a soul of the gaps fallacy we can fall into. And that's the, the parts of human consciousness or human experience that we don't understand fully yet, we can plug the soul into the hole to try to explain those things. But similarly, our body and soul don't compete to explain the causality of our human experience. As human persons, we're a body and soul composite. So what we should expect from that is that every human experience is simultaneously physical and spiritual. It's a kind of marriage of body and soul or a dance of body and soul that explains what we experience as humans. This, uh, this kind of understanding that we're just our body is really at the heart of, um, there's a lot of contemporary research around the idea of brain-computer interfacing. And this shows great promise for good things like helping people with uh, nervous system injuries and, and spinal injuries to be able to walk and to function, which are great things. But the ultimate goal of some of these projects are the idea of uploading human consciousness into a computer. So the idea is that the body is one kind of physical thing that can house a human mind. But if we create a good enough synthetic thing that simulates the same function of the body, then human consciousness can be uploaded into it. And the idea is then that, that your consciousness could live perpetually in cyberspace, in the computer. And, and this, this understanding, this quest of extending human life by preserving consciousness in a, in a synthetic body is a basic misunderstanding of the nature of what it means to be human. Consciousness is something extended. It can't be explained by the soul alone. It can't be explained by the body alone or the brain, which is part of the body. 
human consciousness is uh, is something that that is is a concept that's spread and extended. So human consciousness is involved with the human soul, and it's also highly involved with the human brain. But consciousness is also extended, something that's extended through the whole human body. So I'm not just conscious of, uh, my consciousness isn't just constituted by the processes of my brain. It's also constituted by the experience of my entire body, the touches of my hands on surface, the state of my central nervous system, even unconscious processes like the state of my autonomic nervous system um, by my attunement to the people around me, by the neuroception of other people's nervous systems affects the way I experience the world. But consciousness also extends out into the thing known. Meaning something about the human mind isn't just explained by the human body and soul. But something of the, of, of the, the object of consciousness is both, it's both acting on my consciousness. So I'm, I'm the object of the thing I'm knowing. And the thing I'm knowing is also the object of my consciousness. So there's something of human consciousness that's, that's dependent on living in a world. That's conscious, conscious of being in an environment, regardless of how that sense experience comes to us. So all of this is to say that my experience of being human is intimately connected to being body and soul in the context of a world, of a life world. Some, some ancient heresies that have made their way into Christianity um, by a misappropriation of, of ancient thought are things like Pelagianism. Pelagianism is the heresy that, um, that we're saved through our works, the oldest expression of this heresy. And the basic idea was that, that we need to do good things to be saved, or salvation was a matter of trying harder. There's another ancient heresy called Gnosticism from the, the Greek word for noose or mind. The idea of this was that salvation was a matter of coming to know things, coming to a, a deeper knowledge of these deeper truths, and by this knowledge, we're saved. I think we can see these heresies expressed in modern self-help literature and modern self-help ideas. And, and it grows out of these, uh, these misunderstandings of the nature of what it is to be human. There's a lot of uh, Pelagianism in the self-help movement. Just think of terms like rise and grind. You know, it's just a matter of trying harder. You know, get out your habit tracker and create different systems to put pressure on you to do the right thing. Make a, a wager of your money. Um, get accountable to somebody else. All these different things we do, what we're doing is we're, we're internally and externally creating systems to put pressure on the will to do the right thing. But ultimately, they're just various ways of saving ourselves through our own energy and own effort. On the other hand, there's various forms of Gnosticism by knowledge, right? Well, just pick up the next self-help book, learn a little bit more about it, listen to 5,000 podcasts on the topic, uh, pick up some lectures, get your TED Talks out. But people think they're going to get saved by learning information. The truth is, there's, there's a little bit of the truth in each one of these ideas, right? We do need to try hard. It's true. 
If you want to get better, it's going to take some effort. And you also have to know what to do. You have to be directed in the right, in the right way. So both trying hard and learning the truth are important on the quest. But these things in and of themselves, they're necessary, but not sufficient. What this means is, is each one of these qualities, you're probably not going to get where you want to go without them, both effort and knowledge. But on the other hand, them in and of themselves without something more isn't going to get you there. Because the very foundation of our ability to become who we're called to be, what it means to be human, the very foundation of it is to be in relationship with God. I believe strongly that that even Adam and Eve in the garden, in order for them to function as they were designed, it was necessary for them to be in relationship with God. So even more so in a world of sin and brokenness and trauma and everything else we encounter, the foundation of our capacity to flourish is our relationship with God. So let's take a step back. Many Christians, I think, struggle with this idea of embodiment, of the relationship of body and soul, because of how the scripture talks about the flesh. This idea of the flesh in the spirit, especially um, in St. Paul's writings in the scripture, can be very easily misunderstood. On a base level, when we see the flesh versus the spirit in scripture, we shouldn't interpret it as the body versus the soul. But how we should interpret it are that it's the the drive of disordered passions, that's the flesh, versus the movements of the Holy Spirit within us, the spirit. So it's not body versus soul. It's the movements of the body without God as a result of sin versus the movements in us as a person from the Holy Spirit interacting with us. So let's, the, the verse is Galatians 5, 13 through 25, that especially um, sort of digs into this idea of the flesh versus the spirit in the most substantial way. So I'm going to read some of this, uh, taking out some little pieces of it just to keep the length of the quote down, not to editorialize. So Galatians 5, starting at 13. For you were called for freedom, brothers, but do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another through love. I say then, live by the Spirit and you will certainly not gratify the desire of the flesh. For the flesh has desires against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you may not do what you want. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, rivalry, jealousy, outbursts of fury, acts of selfishness, dissensions, factions, occasions of envy, drinking bouts, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also follow the Spirit. So if you were just to look at this quote on face value, 
you could very easily see how people think. What this means is your body is bad, so the desires of your body are bad, and the spirit is good, so the desires of the spirit are good. So the, the, the sort of route of Christianity is a denial of the body, a rejection of the body, a getting rid of the body, and on the other hand, an embracing of pure spiritual things in getting rid of the body as much as possible and just living a quote-unquote spiritual life. But at the basis of this is a misunderstanding of human nature. Remember, we're a person that is a body and spirit together, one substance with two elements that are in uh, an intimate, uh, intimate relationship with one another, completely connected and interdependent. The end of the scripture passage is really telling because he uses the idea of crucifying the flesh. Crucifying the flesh, not murdering the flesh or killing the flesh, but crucifying the flesh. And I think this term crucify is very important because crucifying something does kill it. But in the Christian world, what comes after crucifixion is resurrection. What comes after crucifixion is resurrection. So while the, the flesh, the desires of the flesh are to be killed in the process, they're to go away. The goal isn't to get rid of the body. The goal is to redeem the body, the redemption of the body with the resurrection of our desires. And what that resurrection expresses is, is a setting right. Like the book of Revelation says, I will make all things new. And in that newness, it's a restoration of all the goodness of God's original plan with taking it up to a higher pitch in God's new covenant that we're called to not just be like God, but to be, be deified, the process of theosis, of becoming like God in a new way in this redemption of our bodies. So we're called to redeem the flesh, not discard the flesh. The Catechism in paragraph 1015 says this, The flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is creator of the flesh. We believe in the word made flesh in order to redeem the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the flesh. But the church couldn't be any more clear that the flesh isn't to be discarded but is essential. The flesh is the hinge of salvation. That's a quote from uh, the father of the church, Tertullian. And what he's saying here is that, that Jesus becomes flesh to redeem the flesh. Jesus became an embodied human person and saves as an embodied human person by a physical act. A physical act that isn't just physical, it's a sacramental action. Right? The, the, the crucifixion is the sacrament of divine love. So it's the definitive revelation of God's love for us that obliterates the lies of the serpent. From the beginning, the serpent said, uh, you know, you can't really trust God. Do it for yourself. God's not going to take care of you. Now, this is an editorializing of the scripture on my part. But the, the statement of truth of, of the, the language of Jesus' body on the cross is a, is a gospel that contradicts the lies of the serpent in the garden. So our, our, our bodies are very important. 
and shouldn't be discarded in our spiritual life. Let's land the plane here and talk about what this actually practically means in our lives. Well, we need to own everything our body does. Everything our body does is me doing it. So an example of this is the process of breathing. I breathe just as an instinct. I don't even think about it. I don't even want to do it. It just happens. Sometimes I breathe as an, sort of a, an instinct of my passions, right? If, if I am underwater long enough holding my breath, once I'm out of the water, my body's going to instinctively take a breath to survive. And there's other times that I breathe because I'm choosing to breathe. I can control my breathing. I slow it down. I speed it up. I might slow down my breathing to enter into a meditative state, or I might speed it up in order to get excited and do something that will require a lot of energy. So this process of breathing can be, can be driven by three different motors of action or, or, or loci of, of movement. And regardless of which motor is driving, it's still me doing it. I'm breathing, whether it's just my body automatically doing it, whether it's an instinct or a passion kicking in and, and making it happen, or whether I'm actually choosing it, whether it's my will doing it or my rational appetite. So everything I do is a human action because I'm a human and I'm doing it. And regardless of it's, if it's an instinct or being moved by my, my passions, my rational appetite or my, my sense appetite, how I'm drawn toward or away from things, or it's my will, my rational appetite, how I'm attracted or repulsed by the truth or lies that I understand, it's still me doing it. So now let's get really practical and talk about this in the context of really the, the primary thing that separates us from God, which is our sin. If I'm struggling with something and I can't overcome it, maybe I'm, I'm bringing in those, those, two, um, those two basic ways that our culture presents us to try to get better, to try harder and learn more, and I'm still struggling with something. Maybe I've already um, received the sacraments. I'm trying to pray and I'm still struggling with something. How should I approach this? I would propose that it's not just the process of trying harder and learning more. Like you just keep throwing the same effort into it and hoping that something changes. We really need to approach this action with a root cause analysis. We need to ask the question, this, this system that I am of body and soul, of instincts and passions and knowledge, for some reason, this system is, is expressing this action, which happens to be sinful. So from this perspective, the choices I'm making are the symptoms or the expressions of the, the underlying function of me as a person, a complex system, a very complex system of body and soul, of thoughts, of feelings, of beliefs, of choices, so on and so forth. So when we're thinking of changing, the first step, the most necessary step, the foundation of it all is being in relationship with God. So as Catholics, the basis of this is the sacramental life. It's being baptized receiving communion, being confirmed, going to confession, 
these sacraments that bring us into the life of God and sustain us in the life of grace. These sacraments, they bring us back to life. The, the scripture talks about God replacing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. In this heart of flesh, it's an organic substance. So we could expect it to function like a living thing. And if, if a living thing is, is injured, damaged, it doesn't require consciousness to get better. Like if, if a tree is damaged, it doesn't have to think about how to get better. What happens is it, is it just changes. A child doesn't need to think about growing up in order to grow up. What you need to do is, first step, remove the insult, remove the block, remove whatever's in the way. The second step, provide what's needed, regardless or, or whatever the, the organic substance is, whatever it needs to grow. And then third, you need to let the growth happen, meaning it takes time. Growth takes time. So it's very similar for us in the spiritual life, for us in, us, in our journey to God, in our journey away from sin. We need that grace, the sacramental grace of the restoration of our heart. But then we need to then confront what's preventing us from receiving the grace that God's offering us in the sacraments. So we need to remove the insults from us as a person. These could be things like trauma or, or really basic trauma, like a misattachment from our childhood. These can be things like spiritual wounds, character lies, false judgments we've made about other people, unholy vows that we've made, try to take control of our life and save ourselves, unforgiveness of other, other people, or sometimes it's just a, maybe a basic physical need that we're not fulfilling, like not getting enough sleep, not eating healthy enough, not exercising or something like that. So we need to remove the insult to us as a human person. Oftentimes it's a, it's a complex web of, of interlocking um, lies and falsehoods and, and harms and wounds and traumas that are sort of at the core of this. Then we need to provide ourselves with what's needed. We need to seek boldly and, but with humility what we honestly and truly need. It could be physical things like healthy food and movement and sleep. Spiritual things, um, physical and spiritual things that are together, uh, relationships, uh, seeking the help of other people, uh, getting God's grace, receiving um, connection, meaningful, purposeful, shared life in a community. This is what's needed to, to make a person healthy and whole, being filled with the true, the good, the beautiful, and the one. So we need to provide the person with what's needed. And then we need to let growth happen, which requires patience and perseverance. A tree doesn't bear fruit overnight. A tree needs to grow from being you know, a seed to being a sapling, to being a, a small tree. And some fruit trees don't start providing fruit until they're, they're in a later stage and, and much stronger. So we could expect the same thing from ourselves. The, the fruit of our life will change once we've gone through this process that takes time. So we have to let it grow. I hope these reflections are helpful for you to change your perspective on yourself. One, to understand yourself truthfully as a person, a body and soul composite, um, working in this beautiful harmony as a person. To understand that our, our, our faith 
that Jesus saves us, uh, not just spiritually, but also physically, and that our bodies are essential to our life with God. And then to start to look at yourself with this kind of wonder of the beauty of how God has made you and consider deep down what's really happening in you that causes you to act out in whatever harmful ways or sinful ways that are separating you from God. And and in this process, we become more and more like God, not because we're trying harder, but because God is transforming us. And then we're removing the barriers we've placed between us and God with the help of his grace throughout the whole process. In the show notes, I'll link various episodes because part of this uh, quick explanation has has referred back to some uh, previous concepts. So if you want to go deeper into any of those uh, different insults I mentioned, ways of growing, there'll be some uh, episodes I'll point you back to in the show notes. But I'm really excited for season four of Physically Spiritual. I'm going to have a, a mini series on, um, on fatherhood as a part of this season. There's going to be a series on, on food, what food is. And we're also going to have some exciting guests to join us on the show. So uh, go back and check out previous episodes. Stick with me as the new season comes out. I'm so grateful that you were here, that you would listen to this. And I pray, God, that this might help you in some way. God bless everyone. Thank you so much for being a part of Physically Spiritual. Every moment of the show you've watched, know that I'm grateful that you've given your time to this. I'm so passionate about the message that I'm trying to share, and I'm excited about the future of the show. So thank you for every like, every view, every watch, every follow, every comment, every rating you give in the show. And a special thank you to all you that are already members of the Awakened Nation. So thanks again for supporting the show.